leaving nothing to the chance that the Pakistan Channel might not work efficiently, Zhou Enlai sent a parallel message via Romania, which for some never-explained reason arrived a month after the Pakistani message in January. This message, too, we were told, had been reviewed by Chairman Mao and Lin Piao. It described Taiwan as the one outstanding issue between China and the United States, and added an entirely new element. Since President Nixon had already visited Belgrade and Bucharest, capitals of communist countries, he would also be welcome in Beijing. In light of the military clashes of the past decade and a half, it was significant that Taiwan was listed as the only issue between China and the United States. In other words, Vietnam clearly was not an obstacle to reconciliation. We replied through the Romanian channel, accepting the principle of an emissary, but ignoring the invitation to the president. At this early stage of contacts, accepting a presidential visit seemed too importuning, not to mention too risky. We conveyed our definition of an appropriate agenda, phrased, to avoid confusion, identically with the message via Pakistan, to the effect that the United States was prepared to discuss all issues of concern to both sides, including Taiwan. Zhou Enlai had seen Yahya in October and the Romanian vice premier in November. Mao had received snow in early October. That all these messages emerged within a few weeks of each other reflected the fact that diplomacy had gone beyond the tactical and was being orchestrated for a major denouement. But to our surprise, and no little uneasiness, there was no response for three months. Probably it was because of the South Vietnamese offensive backed by U.S. air power on the Ho Chi Minh Trail through southern Laos, the principal supply route for North Vietnamese forces in the South. Mao also seems to have had second thoughts about the prospects of an American revolution based on the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations. Perhaps it was because Beijing prefers to move at a pace that demonstrates its imperviousness to mere tactical considerations and precludes any demonstration of Chinese eagerness, much less of weakness. Most likely, Mao needed time to align his own domestic constituencies. It was not until the beginning of April that we heard from China again. It shows none of the channels we had established, but a method of its own, which forced into the open the issue of the Chinese desire to achieve a better relationship with America and was less dependent on actions of the United States government. This is the background to the episode that has entered folklore as ping-pong diplomacy. A Chinese ping-pong team participated in an international tournament in Japan, the first time a Chinese sports team had competed outside China since the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. In recent years, it has emerged that the impending encounter between the Chinese and American teams caused considerable internal debate in the Chinese leadership. The Chinese foreign ministry initially recommended avoiding the tournament entirely, or at least remaining aloof from the American team. Zhou forwarded the matter for consideration by Mao, who deliberated for two days. Late one night, after one of his periodic bouts of insomnia, Mao lay slumped over the table in a sleeping pill-induced haze. 
Suddenly, he croaked to his nurse, telling her to phone the foreign ministry to invite the American team to visit China. The nurse recalled asking him, "Does your word count after taking sleeping pills?" Mao replied, "Yes, it counts. Every word counts. Act promptly, or it will be too late." This order from Mao in hand, the Chinese players used the occasion to invite the American team to visit China. On April 14, 1971, the amazed young Americans found themselves at the Great Hall of the People in the presence of Zhou Enlai, which was more than had ever been achieved by the vast majority of the foreign ambassadors stationed in Beijing. You have opened a new chapter in the relations of the American and Chinese people. Affirmed the Chinese Premier, I am confident that the beginning of our friendship will certainly find support with the majority of our peoples. The athletes, stunned by the fact that they were being propelled into high-level diplomacy, did not respond, causing Zhou Enlai to end with a sentence we later came to recognize as characteristic. Don't you think so? Evoking a round of applause. As usual with Chinese diplomacy. Mao and Zhou were operating on many levels. On one level, the ping-pong diplomacy constituted an answer to the American messages of January. It committed China publicly to the course heretofore confined to the most secret diplomatic channels. In that sense, it was reassurance, but it was also a warning of what course China could pursue were the secret communications thwarted. Beijing could then undertake a public campaign, what would today be called people-to-people -people diplomacy, much as Hanoi was doing in pressing its objectives on Vietnam, and appeal to the growing protest movement in American society on the basis of another lost chance for peace. Joe soon conveyed that the diplomatic channel remained his preferred option. On April 29th. The Pakistani ambassador brought another handwritten message from Beijing, dated April 21st. It explained the long silence by the situation of the time, without explaining whether this referred to domestic or international conditions, but reiterating the willingness to receive a special envoy. Joe was specific about the emissary Beijing had in mind, naming me, or Secretary of State William Rogers. Or even the president of the U.S. himself. As a condition of restoration of the relations, Joe mentioned only the withdrawal of American armed forces from Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait, by far the least contentious issue, and omitted the reversion of Taiwan. At that point, the secrecy with which the diplomacy had been conducted nearly derailed the enterprise, and would have in any previous period of dealing with Beijing. Nixon had decided that the channel to Beijing should be confined to the White House. No other agency had been told of the two communications from Zhou Enlai in December and January. Thus, in a public briefing on April 28, a State Department spokesman declared as the American position that sovereignty over Taiwan was an unsettled question subject to future international resolution. And when the Secretary of State, attending a diplomatic meeting in London, Appeared on television the next day, he commented on the Snow interview, and dismissed the invitation to Nixon as fairly casually made and not serious. He described Chinese foreign policy as expansionist and rather paranoid. Progress in negotiations, 
and a possible Nixon trip to China would be possible only if China decided to join the international community in some unspecified way and complied with the rules of international law. It was a measure of China's strategic imperatives that progress toward resumption of the dialogue continued. The reference to Taiwan as an unsettled question was denounced as fraudulent and a brazen intervention in the affairs of the Chinese people by the governmental spokesman. But the invective was coupled with a reaffirmation that the visit of the table tennis team was a new development in the friendship between the Chinese and American peoples. On May 10th, we accepted Joe's invitation to Nixon, but reiterated our insistence on a broad agenda. Our communication read, at such a meeting, each side would be free to raise the issue of principal concern to it. To prepare for the summit, the president proposed that as his assistant for national security, I should represent him at a preliminary secret meeting with Joe. We indicated a specific date. The reason for the date was not high policy. During the late spring and early summer, the cabinet and White House had planned a series of travels, and it was the first time a high-level plane became available. On June 2nd, we received the Chinese reply. Joe informed us that he had reported Nixon's acceptance of the Chinese invitation to Mao with much pleasure, and that he would welcome me to Beijing for preliminary conversations on the proposed date. We paid little attention to the fact that Lin Biao's name was dropped from this communication. Within a year, Sino-American diplomacy had moved from irreconcilable conflict to a visit to Beijing by a presidential emissary to prepare a visit by the president himself. It did so by sidestepping the rhetoric of two decades and staying focused on the fundamental strategic objective of a geopolitical dialogue leading to a recasting of the Cold War international order. Had Nixon followed professional advice, he would have used the Chinese invitation to return to the traditional agenda and speed up its consideration as a condition for higher-level talks. Not only might this have been treated as a rejection, the whole process of intensified Sino-U.S. contact would almost certainly have been overwhelmed by domestic and international pressures in both countries. Nixon's contribution to the emerging Sino-American understanding was not so much that he understood its desirability, but that he was able to give it a conceptual foundation to which Chinese thinking could relate. To Nixon, the opening to China was part of an overall strategic design, not a shopping list of mutual irritations. Chinese leaders pursued a parallel approach. Invocations of returning to an existing international order were meaningless to them, if only because they did not consider the existing international system, which they had no hand in forming, as relevant to them. They had never conceived their security to reside in the legal arrangement of a community of sovereign states. Americans to this day often treat the opening to China as ushering in a static condition of friendship. But the Chinese leaders were brought up on the concept of shi, the art of understanding matters in flux. When Zhou wrote about reestablishing friendship between the Chinese and American peoples, he described an attitude needed to foster a new international equilibrium, not a final state of the relationship between peoples. In Chinese writings, the hallowed words of the American vocabulary of a legal international order are rarely to be found. 
What was sought, rather, was a world in which China could find security and progress through a kind of combative coexistence, in which readiness to fight was given equal pride of place to the concept of coexistence. Into this world, the United States entered with its first diplomatic mission to communist China. Chapter Nine: Resumption of Relations. First encounters with Mao and Zhou. The most dramatic event of the Nixon presidency occurred in near obscurity. For Nixon had decided that for the mission to Beijing to succeed, it would have to take place in secrecy. A public mission would have set off a complicated internal clearance project within the U.S. government, and insistent demands for consultations from around the world, including Taiwan, still recognized as the government of China. This would have mortgaged our prospects with Beijing, whose attitudes we were being sent to discover. Transparency is an essential objective, but historic opportunities for building a more peaceful international order have imperatives as well. So my team set off to Beijing via Saigon, Bangkok, New Delhi, and Rawalpindi, on an announced fact-finding journey on behalf of the president. My party included a broader set of American officials, as well as a core group destined for Beijing: myself, aides Winston Lord, John Holdridge, and Dick Smyser, and Secret Service agents Jack Reddy and Gary McLeod. The dramatic denouement required us to go through tiring stops at each city, designed to be so boringly matter-of-fact that the media would stop tracking our movements. In Rawalpindi, we disappeared for 48 hours for an ostensible rest. I had feigned illness in a Pakistani hill station in the foothills of the Himalayas. In Washington, only the president and Colonel Alexander Haig, later general, my top aide, knew our actual destination. When the American delegation arrived in Beijing on July 9, 1971. We had experienced the subtlety of Chinese communication, but not the way Beijing conducted actual negotiations. Still less the Chinese style of receiving visitors. American experience with communist diplomacy was based on contacts with Soviet leaders, principally Andrei Gomiko, who had a tendency to turn diplomacy into a test of bureaucratic will. He was impeccably correct in negotiation, but implacable on substance. Sometimes one sensed straining his self-discipline. Strain was nowhere apparent in the Chinese reception of the secret visit or during the dialogue that followed. In all the preliminary maneuvers, we had been sometimes puzzled by the erratic pauses between their messages, which we assumed had something to do with the Cultural Revolution. Nothing now seemed to disturb the serene aplomb of our hosts. Who acted as if welcoming the special emissary of the American president for the first time in the history of the People's Republic of China was the most natural occurrence. For in fact, what we encountered was a diplomatic style closer to traditional Chinese diplomacy than to the pedantic formulations to which we had become accustomed during our negotiations with other communist states. Chinese statesmen historically have excelled at using hospitality, ceremony, and carefully cultivated personal relationships 
as tools of statecraft. It was a diplomacy well-suited to China's traditional security challenge, the preservation of a sedentary and agricultural civilization surrounded by peoples who, if they combined, wielded potentially superior military capacity. China survived and generally achieved dominance by mastering the art of fostering a calibrated combination of rewards and punishments and majestic cultural performance. In this context, hospitality becomes an aspect of strategy. In our case, the ministrations began not when our delegation reached Beijing, but en route from Islamabad. To our surprise, a group of English-speaking Chinese diplomats had been sent to Pakistan to escort us on the journey and ease any tension we might have felt on a five-hour flight to an unfamiliar destination. They had boarded the plane before us, shocking our accompanying security people who had been trained to treat Mao suits as enemy uniforms. On the journey, the team was also able to test some of their research, practice aspects of their conduct, and collect information about their visitors' personal characteristics for their premier. The team had been selected by Joe two years earlier, when the idea of opening with the United States first was mooted in the aftermath of the report of the four marshals. It included three members of the foreign ministry, one of whom, Tang Longbin, later was part of the protocol team for the Nixon visit. Another was Zhang Wenjin, a former ambassador and specialist in what the Chinese termed West European, American, and Oceania affairs. And as it turned out, an awesome linguist. Two younger members of the delegation, in effect, represented Bao and reported directly to him. They were Wang Hairang, his grandniece, and Nancy Tang, an exceptionally capable Brooklyn-born interpreter, whose family had emigrated to China to join the revolution, and who also acted as a kind of political advisor. All this we learned later, as well as the fact that, when first approached, the foreign ministry officials reacted like the marshals had. They needed Joe's personal reassurance that the assignment represented a Mao directive rather than a test of their revolutionary loyalty. Marshal Ye Jianying, the vice chairman of the military commission, one of the four marshals who had been seconded by Mao to analyze China's strategic options, welcomed us at the Beijing airport when we landed at noon, a symbol of the support of the People's Liberation Army for the new Sino-U.S. diplomacy. The marshal took me in a long Chinese-made limousine with drawn blinds to Tai, the state guest house in a walled-off park in the western part of the city. The compound had formerly served as an imperial fishing lake. Ye suggested that the delegation take a rest until Premier Zhou would come to the guesthouse four hours later to welcome us and for a first round of discussions. Zhou's coming to call on us was a gesture of considerable courtesy. The normal diplomatic procedure is for a visiting delegation to be received in a public building of the host country, especially when the difference in protocol rank of the head of the two delegations is so great. In contrast to Zhou, the premier, my protocol rank as national security advisor was equivalent to that of a deputy cabinet secretary, three levels down. We soon discovered that our Chinese hosts had designed an almost improbably leisurely schedule, as if to signal that after surviving more than two decades of isolation, they were in no particular hurry to conclude a substantive agreement now. 
We were scheduled to be in Beijing for almost exactly 48 hours. We could not extend our stay because we were expected in Paris for talks on Vietnam. Nor did we control the schedule of the presidential plane of Pakistan, which had taken us to Beijing. When we saw our program, we realized that in addition to this pause before Joe's arrival, a four-hour visit to the Forbidden City had been planned. Thus, eight hours of the available 48 hours had been provided for. As it turned out, Joe would be unavailable for the next evening, which had been reserved for a visit by a North Korean Politburo member, which could not be rescheduled, or perhaps was not as a cover for the secret trip. If one allowed for 16 hours for two nights rest, there would be less than 24 hours left for the first dialogue between countries that had been at war, near war, and without significant diplomatic contact for 20 years. In fact, only two formal negotiating sessions were available, seven hours on the day of my arrival, from 4.30 p.m. to 11.20 p.m., and six hours on the next, from noon until about 6.30 p.m. The first meeting was at the state guest house, the United States acting as host by the conceit of Chinese protocol. The second was at the Great Hall of the People, where the Chinese government would receive us. It could be argued that the apparent Chinese nonchalance was a form of psychological pressure. To be sure, had we left without progress, it would have been a major embarrassment to Nixon, who had not shared my mission with any other cabinet member. But if the calculations of two years of China diplomacy were correct, the exigencies that induced Mao to extend the invitation might turn unmanageable by a rebuff of an American mission to Beijing. Confrontation made no sense for either side. That is why we were in Beijing. Nixon was eager to raise American sights beyond Vietnam. Mao's decision had been for a move that might force the Soviets to hesitate before taking on China militarily. Neither side could afford failure. Each side knew the stakes. In a rare symbiosis of analyses, both sides decided to spend most of the time on trying to explore each other's perception of the international order. Since the ultimate purpose of the visit was to start the process of determining whether the previously antagonistic foreign policies of the two countries could be aligned, a conceptual discussion, at some point sounding more like a conversation between two professors of international relations than a working diplomatic dialogue, was in fact the ultimate form of practical diplomacy. When the premier arrived, our handshake was a symbolic gesture, at least until Nixon could arrive in China for a public repetition, since Secretary of State John Foster Dulles had refused to shake hands with Joe at the Geneva Conference in 1954, a slight that rankled despite the frequent Chinese protestations that it made no difference. We then repaired to a conference room in the guesthouse and faced each other across a green baize table. Here, the American delegation had its first personal experience with the singular figure who had worked by Mao's side through nearly a half-century of revolution, war, upheaval, and diplomatic maneuver. Zhou Enlai In some 60 years of public life, I have encountered no more compelling figure than Zhou Enlai. Short, elegant, with an expressive face framing luminous eyes, he dominated by exceptional intelligence and capacity to intuit the intangibles of the psychology of his opposite number. When I met him, he had been premier for nearly 22 years, 
and an associate of Mao for 40. He had made himself indispensable as the crucial mediator between Mao and the people who formed the raw material for the chairman's vast agenda, translating Mao's sweeping visions into concrete programs. At the same time, he had earned the gratitude of many Chinese for moderating the excesses of these visions, at least wherever Mao's fervor gave scope for moderation. Later on, Zhou was criticized for having concentrated on softening some of Mao's practices rather than resisting them. When the American delegation met Zhou, China had just undergone the Cultural Revolution, of which he was, as a cosmopolitan foreign-educated advocate for pragmatic engagement with the West, an obvious target. Was he its enabler or a break on it? Surely Zhou's methods of political survival involved lending his administrative skill to the execution of policies that he may well have found personally distasteful. Perhaps because of this, however, he was spared the purges that were the fate of most of his contemporary leaders in the 1960s, until he eventually came under increasing attack and was in effect removed from office in late 1973. The difference between the leaders was reflected in their personalities. Mao dominated any gathering. Zhou suffused it. Mao's passion strove to overwhelm opposition. Zhou's intellect would seek to persuade or outmaneuver it. Mao was sardonic. Zhou penetrating. Mao thought of himself as a philosopher. Zhou saw his role as an administrator or negotiator. Mao was eager to accelerate history. Zhou was content to exploit its currents. A saying he often repeated was, the helmsman must ride with the waves. When they were together, there was no question of the hierarchy, not simply in the formal sense, but in the deeper aspect of Zhou's extraordinarily deferential conduct. The advisor to the prince occasionally faces the dilemma of balancing the benefits of the ability to alter events against the possibility of exclusion, should he bring his objections to any one policy to a head. How does the ability to modify the prince's prevailing conduct weigh against the moral onus of participation in his policies? How does one measure the element of nuance over time against the claims of absolutes in the immediate? What is the balance between the cumulative impact of moderating trends against that of a grand and probably doomed gesture? Deng Xiaoping cut to the heart of these dilemmas in his subsequent assessment of Zhou's role in the Cultural Revolution, in which Deng and his family suffered considerably. Without the premier, the Cultural Revolution would have been much worse. And without the premier, the Cultural Revolution wouldn't have dragged on for such a long time. Publicly, at least, Deng resolved these issues on behalf of Zhou. In an interview Deng gave to the Italian journalist Oriana Fallaci in 1980, after his return from exile, he stated, Premier Zhou was a man who worked hard and uncomplainingly all his life. He worked 12 hours a day and sometimes 16 hours or more throughout his life. We got to know each other quite early, that is, when we were in France on a work-study program during the 1920s. I have always looked upon him as my elder brother. We took the revolutionary road at about the same time. He was much respected by his comrades and all the people. 
Fortunately, he survived during the Cultural Revolution when we were knocked down. He was in an extremely difficult position then, and he said and did many things that he would have wished not to. But the people forgave him because had he not done and said those things, he himself would not have been able to survive and play the neutralizing role he did, which reduced losses. He succeeded in protecting quite a number of people. Contrary views have had their hearing. Not all analysts shared Dung's ultimate appraisal of the exigencies of Joe's political survival. In my dealings with him, Joe's subtle and sensitive style helped overcome many pitfalls of an emerging relationship between two previously hostile major countries. The Sino-U.S. rapprochement started as a tactical aspect of the Cold War. It evolved to where it became central to the evolution of the new global order. Neither of us had any illusion of changing the basic convictions of the other. It was precisely the absence of any such illusion that facilitated our dialogue. But we articulated common purposes that survived both our periods in office, one of the highest rewards to which statesmen can lay claim. All that was still in the distant future when Joe and I sat down around the Bay's table to explore whether a beginning of reconciliation was truly possible at all. Joe invited me, as the guest, to make the opening statement. I had decided not to detail the issues that had divided the two countries, but rather to concentrate on the evolution of Sino-U.S. relations from a philosophical perspective. My opening remarks included the somewhat florid phrase, Many visitors have come to this beautiful and to us mysterious land. At this point, Joe interrupted. You will find it not mysterious. When you have become familiar with it, it will not be so mysterious as before. Unraveling each other's mysteries was a good way of defining our challenge, but Joe went further. In his first comments to an American envoy in 20 years, he stated that restoring friendship was one of the principal goals of the emerging relationship a point he had already made when he met with the American ping-pong team. On my second visit three months later, Joe greeted my delegation as if the friendship were already an established fact. So it's only the second meeting, and I am saying what I want to you. You and Mr. Winston Lord are familiar with this, but not Miss Diane Matthews, my secretary, and our new friend, referring to Commander John Howe, my military assistant. You probably thought the Chinese Communist Party has three heads and six arms, but lo and behold, I am like you, someone you can talk reason with and talk honestly. In February 1973, Mao made the same point. The United States and China had once been two enemies, he offered in welcoming me to his study. But now we call the relationship between ourselves a friendship. It was, however, a hard-headed, unsentimental perception of friendship. The Chinese Communist leadership retained some of the traditional approach to barbarian management. In it, the other side is flattered by being admitted to the Chinese club as an old friend, a posture that makes disagreement more complicated and confrontations painful. When they conduct Middle Kingdom diplomacy, Chinese diplomats maneuver to induce their opposite numbers to propose the Chinese preference so that acquiescence can appear as the granting of a personal favor to the interlocutor. At the same time, the emphasis on personal relationships goes beyond the tactical. 
Chinese diplomacy has learned from millennia of experience that in international issues, each apparent solution is generally an admission ticket to a new set of related problems. Hence, Chinese diplomats consider continuity of relationships an important task, and perhaps more important than formal documents. By comparison, American diplomacy tends to segment issues into self-contained units to be dealt with on their own merits. In this task, American diplomats also prize good personal relations. The difference is that Chinese leaders relate the friendship less to personal qualities, and more to long-term cultural, national, or historic ties. Americans stress the individual qualities of their counterparts. Chinese protestations of friendship seek durability for long-term relationships through the cultivation of intangibles. American equivalents attempt to facilitate ongoing activities by emphasis on social contact, and Chinese leaders will pay some, though not unlimited, price for the reputation of standing by their friends. For example, Mao's invitation to Nixon shortly after his resignation, when he was being widely ostracized. The same gesture was made to former Prime Minister Kakuei Tanaka of Japan when he retired due to a scandal in 1974. A good illustration of the Chinese emphasis on intangibles is an exchange I had with Joe during my October 1971 visit. I presented the proposals of our advance team for the presidential visit with the reassurance that since we had so many substantive issues to deal with. Technical problems would not be permitted to stand in the way. Joe replied by turning my operational point into a cultural paradigm. Right, mutual trust and mutual respect. These two points. I had emphasized functionality. Joe stressed context. One cultural trait regularly invoked by Chinese leaders was their historic perspective, the ability, indeed the necessity. To think of time in categories different from the West's, whatever an individual Chinese leader achieves is brought about in a time frame that represents a smaller fraction of his society's total experience than any other leader in the world. The duration and scale of the Chinese past allow Chinese leaders to use the mantle of an almost limitless history to evoke a certain modesty in their opposite numbers, even if in the retelling. What is presented as history is occasionally defined by a metaphorical interpretation. The foreign interlocutor can be made to feel that he is standing against the way of nature, and that his actions are already destined to be written as a footnoted aberration in the grand sweep of Chinese history. In those first exchanges with us on our arrival in Beijing, Joe made a valiant effort to confer on America a history longer than China's. As a kind of welcoming present. In the next sentence, however, he was back to the traditional perspective. We are two countries on two sides of the Pacific Ocean, yours with a history of 200 years, and ours with a history of only 22 years, dating from the founding of New China. Therefore, we are younger than you. As for our ancient culture, every country has it: the Indians in the U.S. and Mexico. The Inca Empire in South America, which was even more ancient than China, it's a pity that their scriptures were not preserved but were lost. With respect to China's long history, there's one good point: 
the written language, which contains a heritage of 4,000 years based on historical relics. This is beneficial to the unification and development of our nation. Altogether, Joe sought to outline a new approach to international relations, claiming a special moral quality that had evolved under Confucianism and was now ascribed to communism. Chairman Mao on many occasions has said that we would absolutely not become a superpower. What we strive for is that all countries, big or small, be equal. It is not just a question of equality for two countries. Of course it's a good thing for our two countries to negotiate on the basis of equality, to exchange views, and to seek to find common points, as well as putting on the table our differences. In order to really gain a relaxation in the international arena over a comparatively long period of time, one must deal with one another on the basis of equality. That is not easy to achieve. Machiavelli would have argued that it is in the interest of the country in need of reassurance, yet unwilling to ask, for it to strive for a general proposition that could then be applied to specific cases. This was one reason why Joe insisted that however strong it became, China would maintain a unique approach to international affairs that eschewed the traditional concept of power. We do not consider ourselves a power. Although we are developing our economy, in comparison to others, we are comparatively backward. Of course, your president also mentioned that in the next five to ten years, China will speedily develop. We think it will not be so soon, although we will try to go all out, aim high, and develop our socialist construction in a better, faster, and more economical way. The second part of our answer is that when our economy is developed, we will still not consider ourselves a superpower and will not join in the ranks of the superpowers. The proposition that all that China sought was equality among nations would surely have marked a departure from an imperial history in which China is described as the Middle Kingdom. It was also a way of reassuring the United States that China was not a potential threat requiring countervailing force. The principle that Chinese international conduct was based on norms transcending the assertion of power went back to Confucius. As a basis for a new relationship, the test would be the compatibility of these norms with the pressures of a period of upheaval. The underlying challenge of the secret visit was to establish enough confidence to turn a first meeting into a process. Almost invariably, high-level diplomatic exchanges begin by clearing away the underbrush of day-to-day -day issues. The unusual aspect of the secret visit was that in the absence of any contact for 20 years, there were no day-to-day -day problems to clear away, except two, which were recognized as insoluble in the short term, Taiwan and Vietnam. The problem was how to put them aside. Both of these issues were anomalies, in 1971, it is hard to remember, the United States did not recognize Beijing as the capital of China. China and America had no diplomats in each other's capitals and had no direct way to communicate with each other. The U.S. ambassador to China was assigned to Taipei, and the Chinese ambassador to the United States represented Taiwan. No U.S. diplomats or officials were assigned to Beijing. 
so-called liaison offices were not established until 18 months later. The second anomaly was the Vietnam War. Part of my task was to achieve Chinese understanding for a war America was fighting on China's border against an ally of China. Both Zhou and I knew that my very presence in Beijing was a grievous blow to Hanoi, raising the implication of its isolation, though neither Zhou nor I ever discussed the issue in these terms. Note, shortly after my July 1971 visit, Zhou flew to Hanoi to brief North Vietnamese leaders on China's new diplomatic posture. By most accounts, these talks did not proceed smoothly, nor did Zhou's subsequent discussions with Madame Nguyen Thi Binh, the implacable shadow foreign minister of the Hanoi Front Provisional Revolutionary Government of South Vietnam. The Taiwan issue had become deeply embedded in the domestic attitudes of both countries, defined by two preconditions that had so far stymied diplomatic movement. Beijing's position had been that American acceptance of the One China principle was the precondition of any progress. The American precondition was that China commit itself to peaceful resolution of the issue before the United States would discuss it. In the first exchange over the agenda, Joe cut that Gordian knot. In the exchanges before the meeting, he had already accepted the principle that both sides would be free to raise any topic, but he had not yet abandoned the condition that the Taiwan issue needed to be discussed and presumably settled first. In the initial exchange, Joe indicated that he was open to any sequence of discussion I might suggest. In other words, Taiwan no longer needed to be discussed, much less settled first. He also accepted linkage in reverse. That is, to make a settlement of issues relating to Taiwan dependent on the solution of other issues, for example, Indochina. Kissinger, I wanted to ask the Prime Minister how he proposes to proceed. We can do it in one of two ways, each stating the problems which concern us, reserving its answers until later, or proceeding with the issues one at a time. Which do you prefer? Joe, what is your opinion? Kissinger, I have no strong opinion. One possible way is that since Prime Minister Zhou has stated his views on Taiwan, we could state our views on Indochina. Then I could tell him of my reaction to his statement on Taiwan, and he could tell me of his reaction to mine on Indochina. Or we could take each issue one at a time. Zhou, either way, it's your decision. You can say whatever you like. You could speak first on the Taiwan question or Indochina or together because you may think they are linked. Kissinger, I believe they are linked to some extent. In the event we made the withdrawal of our military forces from Taiwan conditional on the settlement of the Indochina War. Zhou's substantive position on Taiwan, which he articulated during the long opening discussion on the first day, was familiar. We had heard it at 136 Warsaw meetings. The United States needed to recognize the PRC as the sole legitimate government of China and not make any exceptions and accept that Taiwan was an inalienable part of China. The natural logic of the matter dictated that the United States must withdraw all its armed forces and dismantle all its military installations on Taiwan and in the Taiwan Straits within a limited time period. As these processes unfolded, eventually the U.S. Republic of China Defense Treaty, whose legality Beijing did not recognize, would not exist. 
At the time of the secret trip to China, there was no difference between Beijing and Taipei as to the nature of the Chinese state. Both Chinese sides subscribed to the One China principle. The Taiwanese authorities forbade agitation for independence. Therefore, for the United States, the issue was not agreeing to the One China principle, so much as putting the recognition of Beijing as the capital of a united China into a time frame compatible with American domestic necessities. The secret trip began the delicate process by which the United States has step by step accepted a One China concept, and China has been extremely flexible about the timing of its implementation. Successive American presidents of both parties have skillfully pursued a balancing act. They have progressively deepened relations with Beijing, while creating conditions in which Taiwan's economy and democracy have flourished. Successive Chinese leaders, while vigorously insisting on their perception of One China, have not pushed it to a showdown. Joe followed the same pattern on Vietnam that I had on Taiwan. In the sense of avoiding any immediate commitment, but also any sense of urgency, Joe listened to my presentation and asked penetrating questions. Yet he stopped far short of even moral pressure, much less threats. Whatever support China gave Vietnam had a historical, not an ideological or strategic origin. He explained, "The debt we owe them was incurred by our ancestors. We have since." Liberation, no responsibility, because we overthrew the old system. Yet we still feel a deep and full sympathy for them. Sympathy, of course, was not the same as political or military support. It was a delicate way to convey that China would not become involved militarily, or press us diplomatically. At lunch on the second day at the Great Hall of the People. Joe suddenly raised the issue of the Cultural Revolution. We had undoubtedly observed it from outside, he said, but he wanted his guests to understand the road that had led China, however circuitously, to where Chinese and American leaders could now meet. Mao had sought to purify the Communist Party and break through the bureaucratic structures. Joe explained, to this end, he had created the Red Guards as an institution. Outside the party and the government, whose task was to return the system to the true ideology and ideological purity. The decision turned out to produce turmoil, as various Red Guard units pursued increasingly autonomous and incompatible policies. Indeed, a point was reached, according to Joe's account, where various organizations or even regions created their own Red Guard units to protect themselves in the spreading chaos. The spectacle of these splinter Red Guard units fighting each other was truly shocking for a people brought up on the universal truth of communist beliefs and faith in China's unity. At that point, Chairman Mao had asked the PLA to restore order after the country, on the whole, had made progress in defeating bureaucracy and clarifying its convictions. Joe was in a delicate position in presenting this account, which he must have been instructed to do by Mao. He clearly sought to distinguish himself from the Cultural Revolution, and yet remained loyal to Mao, who would read the transcript. At the time, I tried to sum up Joe's main point to myself as indicating a measure of disassociation from Mao, by means of an expression of qualified support, as follows: There was much chaos during the Cultural Revolution. At one point, 
the Red Guards locked Joe up in his own office. On the other hand, Joe had not been as far-sighted as Chairman Mao, who saw the need to inject new vigor into the revolution. Why present such a narrative to an American delegation on the first visit from the United States in two decades? Because the objective was to go beyond normalization to what our interlocutors called friendship, but which would be more accurately described as strategic cooperation. For that, it was important to define China as a country that had overcome its turmoil and was therefore reliable. Having navigated the Cultural Revolution, Joe implied, it was able to face any foreign foe as a united country, and was therefore a potential partner against the Soviet threat. Joe made the theme explicit in the formal session that immediately followed. It was held in the Fujian Hall of the Great Hall of the People, where each hall is named after a Chinese province. Fujian is the province to which, in both Beijing's and Taipei's administrative divisions, Taiwan and the so-called offshore islands belonged. Note: Taiwan was also considered part of Fujian until 1885, when the Qing Dynasty established the island as a separate province. Joe did not make a point of the symbolism, and the Americans ignored it. Joe began by outlining China's defiance, even should all conceivable enemies unite against it. You like to talk about philosophy. The worst would be that China would be carved up once again. You could unite with the USSR, occupying all areas north of the Yellow River, and you occupying all the areas south of the Yangtze River, and the eastern section between these two rivers could be left to Japan. If such a large maneuver should occur, what would the Chinese Communist Party and Chairman Mao be prepared to do? We would be prepared to resist for a protracted period by people's warfare, engaging in a long-term struggle until final victory. This would take time, and of course, we would have to sacrifice lives. But this is something which we would have to contemplate. According to recent Chinese historical accounts, Zhou had been specifically instructed by Mao to brag that. Although all under the heavens is in great chaos, the situation is wonderful. Mao was worried about Soviet aggression, but he did not want to express concern, even less appear to ask for help. The narrative of turmoil under the heavens was his way of eliciting American attitudes without the implication of concern involved in asking for them. To sketch both the maximum conceivable threat. And China's fortitude in resisting even it. No American intelligence estimate had ever conceived so cataclysmic a contingency. No American policymaker had considered so global a confrontation. Yet its sweep did not specify the specific dominant concern, which was a Soviet attack, and thus China avoided appearing as a supplicant. Despite its apparent explicitness. Joe's presentation was a subtle approach to a discussion of strategic cooperation. In the Atlantic region, we were allied with friendly countries under a looming threat. They would seek reassurance by transforming oral pledges into a legal obligation. The Chinese leaders took the opposite course. How China was prepared to stand alone, even in the face of a nuclear threat, and fight a protracted guerrilla war. On its own, against a coalition of all major powers, became a standard Chinese narrative over the next decade. 
Its underlying purpose was to turn self-reliance into a weapon and into a method of mutual assistance based on parallel perceptions. Reciprocal obligations between China and the United States would not be established in a legal document, but in a shared perception of a common threat. Though China made no claim for outside assistance, it would spontaneously arise from shared perceptions. It would be dispensed with if the other party did not share, or no longer shared, the Chinese view of the challenge. At the very end of the second day's session, and with the evening blocked for Joe by the visit of the North Korean dignitary, with about 18 hours before our unbreakable departure deadline, Joe raised the issue of a visit by President Nixon. Both Joe and I had made glancing references to it, but had avoided being specific because neither of us wanted to deal with a rebuff or to appear as a supplicant. Joe finally adopted the elegant solution of moving into the topic as a procedural issue. Joe, what is your thinking on an announcement of the visit? Kissinger, what visit? Joe, would it cover only your visit or also President Nixon's visit? Kissinger, we could announce my visit and say that Chairman Mao has extended an invitation to President Nixon and he has accepted, either in principle or at a fixed time, next spring. What is your pleasure? I think there are advantages in doing both together. Joe, then would it be possible for the two sides to designate some of our men to draft an announcement? Kissinger, we should draft in the context we have been discussing. Joe, both visits. Kissinger, that would be all right. Joe, we shall try it. I have an appointment at 6 o'clock that will last until 10 o'clock. My office is free to you. Or you can go to your residence for discussions. You can have supper and rest and a film. Kissinger, we will meet at 10 o'clock. Joe, yes, I will come to your residence. We will work deep into the night. As it happened, the communique could not be finished that night because of a deadlock over who would be said to have invited whom. Each side wanted the other to look more eager. We split the difference. The draft needed the chairman's approval, and Mao had gone to bed. Mao finally approved a formulation in which Zhou, knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, was said to have extended an invitation, which Nixon had then accepted with pleasure. We finished drafting the terms of a statement for the visit of President Nixon just before the deadline for our departure on the afternoon of Sunday, July 11th. Our announcement will shake the world, said Zhou, and the delegation flew back concealing its excitement for the hours before the world could be shaken. I briefed Nixon at his San Clemente Western White House. Then simultaneously on July 15th, from Los Angeles and Beijing, the secret trip and the invitation were both made public. Nixon in China, the meeting with Mao. Seven months after the secret visit on February 21st, 1972, President Nixon arrived in Beijing on a raw winter day. It was a triumphant moment for the president, the inveterate anti-communist who had seen a geopolitical opportunity and seized it boldly. As a symbol of the fortitude with which he had navigated to this day and of the new era he was inaugurating, he wanted to descend alone from Air Force One to meet Zhou Enlai, 
who was standing on the windy tarmac in his immaculate Mao jacket as a Chinese military band played the Star-Spangled Banner. The symbolic handshake that erased Dulles's snub duly took place. But for a historic occasion, it was strangely muted. When Nixon's motorcade drove into Beijing, the streets had been cleared of onlookers, and his arrival was played as the last item on the evening news. As revolutionary as the opening itself had been, the final communique had not yet been fully agreed, especially in the key paragraph on Taiwan. A celebration would have been premature, and perhaps weakened the Chinese negotiating position of studied equanimity. Two, the Chinese leaders knew that their Vietnamese allies were furious that China had given Nixon an opportunity to rally the American public. A public demonstration for their enemy in the capital of their ally would have proved too great a strain on the ever tenuous Sino-Vietnamese relationship. Our hosts made up for the missing demonstrations by inviting Nixon to a meeting with Mao within hours of our arrival. Inviting is not the precise word for how meetings with Mao occurred. Appointments were never scheduled. They came about as if events of nature. They were echoes of emperors granting audiences. The first indication of Mao's invitation to Nixon occurred when, shortly after our arrival, I received word that Joe needed to see me in a reception room. He informed me that Chairman Mao would like to see the president. To avoid the impression that Nixon was being summoned, I raised some technical issues about the order of events at the evening banquet. Uncharacteristically impatient, Joe responded. Since the chairman is inviting him, he wants to see him fairly soon. In welcoming Nixon at the very outset of his visit, Mao was signaling his authoritative endorsement to domestic and international audiences before talks had even begun. Accompanied by Joe, we set off for Mao's residence in Chinese cars. No American security personnel were permitted, and the press could be notified only afterward. Mao's residence was approached through a wide gate on the east-west axis, carved from where the ancient city walls stood before the communist revolution. Inside the imperial city, the road hugged a lake, on the other side of which stood a series of residences for high officials. All had been built in the days of Sino-Soviet friendship, and reflected the heavy Stalinist style of the period, similar to the state guesthouses. Mao's residence appeared no different, though it stood slightly apart from the others. There were no visible guards or other appurtenances of power. A small anteroom was almost completely dominated by a ping pong table. It did not matter because we were taken directly to Mao's study, a room of modest size with bookshelves lining three walls, filled with manuscripts in a state of considerable disarray. Books covered the tables and were piled up on the floor. A simple wooden bed stood in a corner. The all-powerful ruler of the world's most populous nation wished to be perceived as a philosopher king, who had no need to buttress his authority with traditional symbols of majesty. Mao rose from an armchair, in the middle of a semicircle of armchairs, with an attendant close by to steady him if necessary. We learned later that he had suffered a debilitating series of heart and lung ailments in the weeks before, and that he had difficulty moving. 
overcoming his handicaps, Mao exuded an extraordinary willpower and determination. He took Nixon's hands in both of his and showered his most benevolent smile on him. The picture appeared in all Chinese newspapers. The Chinese were skillful in using Mao photographs to convey a mood and a direction of policy. When Mao scowled, storms were approaching. When he was photographed wagging a finger at a visitor, it indicated reservations of a somewhat put-upon teacher. The meeting provided us our first introduction to Mao's bantering and elliptical style of conversation. Most political leaders present their thoughts in the form of bullet points. Mao advanced his ideas in a Socratic manner. He would begin with a question or an observation and invite comment. He would then follow with another observation. Out of this web of sarcastic remarks, observations, and queries would emerge a direction, though rarely a binding commitment. From the outset, Mao abjured any intention to conduct either a philosophical or strategic dialogue with Nixon. Nixon had mentioned to the Chinese Vice Foreign Minister Chiao Guanhua, who had been sent to escort the presidential party from Shanghai to Beijing. Air Force One had stopped in Shanghai to take a Chinese navigator aboard. That he was looking forward to discussing philosophy with the chairman. Mao would have none of it. Asserting that I was the only doctor of philosophy available, he added, "What about asking him to be the main speaker today?" As if by habit, Mao was playing at the contradictions between his guests. This sarcastic evasion could have served the purpose of creating a potential for a rift between the president and the national security adviser. Presidents being generally unappreciative of being upstaged by their security adviser. Nor was Mao willing to take a Nixon hint to discuss challenges posed by a number of countries he enumerated. Nixon framed the main issues as follows: We, for example, must ask ourselves, again in the confines of this room, why the Soviets have more forces on the border facing you than on the border facing Western Europe. We must ask ourselves: What is the future of Japan? Is it better? Here, I know we have disagreements. Is it better for Japan to be neutral, totally defenseless, or is it better for a time for Japan to have some relations with the United States? The question is: Which danger the People's Republic faces, whether it is the danger of American aggression or Soviet aggression? Mao refused debate. All those troublesome questions I don't want to get into very much. He suggested they be discussed with the premier. What then did Mao wish to convey through his apparently meandering dialogue? The perhaps most important messages were things that did not happen. First, after decades of mutual recrimination over Taiwan, the subject in effect did not come up. The sum total of discussions devoted to it was as follows: Mao. Our common old friend, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, doesn't approve of this. He calls us communist bandits. He recently issued a speech. Have you seen him? Nixon. Chiang Kai-shek calls the chairman a bandit. What does the chairman call Chiang Kai-shek? Joe. Generally speaking, we call them Chiang Kai-shek's clique. In the newspapers, sometimes we call him a bandit. We are also called bandits in turn. Anyway, we abuse each other. Mao. 
Actually, the history of our friendship with him is much longer than the history of your friendship with him. No threats, no demands, no deadlines, no references to past deadlock. After a war, two military confrontations, and 136 deadlocked ambassadorial meetings, the Taiwan issue had lost its urgency. It was being put aside, at least for the time being, as first suggested by Joe at the secret meeting. Second, Mao wanted to convey that Nixon was a welcome visitor. The photograph had taken care of that. Third, Mao was eager to remove any threat from China to the United States. At the present time, the question of aggression from the United States or aggression from China is relatively small. That is, it could be said that this is not a major issue, because the present situation is one in which a state of war does not exist between our two countries. You want to withdraw some of your troops back on your soil? Ours do not go abroad. This cryptic sentence that Chinese troops stayed at home removed the concern that Vietnam might end like Korea with massive Chinese intervention. Fourth, Mao wanted to convey that he had encountered a challenge in pursuing the opening to America, but that he had overcome it. He offered a sardonic epitaph to Lin Biao, who had fled the capital in September 1971 in a military airplane that crashed in Mongolia in what was reportedly an abortive coup. In our country also there is a reactionary group which is opposed to our contact with you. The result was that they got on an airplane and fled abroad. As for the Soviet Union, they finally went to dig out the corpses, but they didn't say anything about it. Fifth, Mao favored accelerated bilateral cooperation and urged technical talks on the subject. Our side also is bureaucratic in dealing with matters. For example, you wanted some exchange of persons on a personal level, things like that. Also trade. But rather than deciding that, we stuck with our stand that without settling major issues, there is nothing to do with smaller issues. I myself persisted in that position. Later on, I saw you were right, and we played table tennis. Six, he stressed his personal goodwill to Nixon both personally and because he said he preferred dealing with right-wing governments on the grounds that they were more reliable. Mao, the author of The Great Leap Forward and the anti-rightist campaign, made the astonishing remark that he had voted for Nixon and that he was comparatively happy when these people on the right come into power, in the West, at least. Nixon, when the chairman says he voted for me, he voted for the lesser of two evils. Mao, I like rightists. People say you are rightists, that the Republican Party is to the right, that Prime Minister Heath is also to the right. Nixon and General de Gaulle. Mao, de Gaulle is a different question. They also say the Christian Democratic Party of West Germany is also to the right. I am comparatively happy when these people on the right come into power. Nevertheless, he warned that if the Democrats gained power in Washington, China would establish contacts with them too. At the beginning of the Nixon visit, Mao was prepared to commit himself to the direction it implied, though not yet to the details of the specific negotiations about to begin. 
It was not clear whether a formula on Taiwan could be found, all other issues having been essentially settled. But he was ready to endorse a substantial agenda of cooperation in the 15 hours of dialogue that had been scheduled between Nixon and Zhou. The basic direction having been set, Mao counseled patience and hedged should we fail to come up with an agreed communique. Rather than treat that setback as a failure, Mao argued it should spur renewed efforts. The impending strategic design overrode all other concerns, even deadlock over Taiwan. Mao advised both sides not to stake too much on one set of negotiations. Mao, it is all right to talk well, and also all right if there are no agreements, because what use is there if we stand in deadlock? Why is it that we must be able to reach results? People will say, if we fail the first time, then people will talk. Why are we not able to succeed the first time? The only reason would be that we have taken the wrong road. What will they say if we succeed the second time? In other words, even if for some unforeseen reason the talks about to begin were to deadlock, China would persevere to achieve the desired result of a strategic cooperation with America in the future. As the meeting was breaking up, Mao, the prophet of continuous revolution, emphasized to the president of the heretofore vilified capitalist imperialist society that ideology was no longer relevant to relations between the two countries. Mao, pointing to Dr. Kissinger, seize the hour and seize the day. I think that generally speaking, people like me sound a lot of big cannons. Joe laughs. That is, things like the whole world should unite and defeat imperialism, revisionism, and all reactionaries and establish socialism. Mao laughed uproariously at the implication that anyone might have taken seriously a slogan that had been scrawled for decades on public surfaces all over China. He ended the conversation with a comment characteristically sardonic, mocking, and reassuring. Mao. But perhaps you, as an individual, may not be among those to be overthrown. They say that he, Dr. Kissinger, is also among those not to be overthrown personally. And if all of you are overthrown, we wouldn't have any more friends left. With our long-term personal safety thus assured, and the non-ideological basis of their relationship certified by the highest authority on that subject, the two sides commenced five days of dialogue and banquets, interspersed with sightseeing trips. The Nixon-Joe Dialogue The substantive issues had been divided into three categories, the first being the long-term objectives of the two sides and their cooperation against hegemonic powers, a shorthand for the Soviet Union without the invidiousness of naming it. This would be conducted by Joe and Nixon and restricted staffs, which included me. We met for at least three hours every afternoon. Second, a forum for discussing economic cooperation and scientific and technical exchanges was headed by the foreign ministers of the two sides. Lastly, there was a drafting group for the final communique, headed by Vice Foreign Minister Tiao Guanhua and myself. The drafting meetings took place late at night after the banquets. The meetings between Nixon and Joe were unique in encounters between heads of government. 
Nixon, of course, was also head of state, in that they did not deal with any contemporary issues. These were left to the communique drafters and the foreign ministers panel. Nixon concentrated on placing a conceptual roadmap of American policy before his counterpart. Given the starting point of the two sides, it was important that our Chinese interlocutors would hear an authoritative and reliable guide to American purposes. Nixon was extraordinarily well equipped for this role. As a negotiator, his reluctance to engage in face-to-face -face confrontations, and indeed his evasion of them, tended to produce vagueness and ambiguity. But he was a great briefer. Among the ten American presidents I have known, he had a unique grasp of long-term international trends. He used the 15 hours of meetings with Joe to put before him a vision of U.S.-China relations and their impact on world affairs. While I was en route to China, Nixon had outlined his perspective to the U.S. ambassador in Taipei, who would have the painful task of explaining to his hosts that America in the years ahead would be shifting the emphasis of its China policy to Beijing from Taipei. We must have in mind, and they, Taipei, must be prepared for the fact that there will continue to be a step-by-step, -step, a more normal relationship with the other, the Chinese mainland. Because our interests require it, not because we love them, but because they're there, and because the world situation has so drastically changed. Nixon forecast that despite China's turmoil and privation, its people's outstanding abilities would eventually propel China to the first rank of world powers. Well, you can just stop and think of what could happen if anybody with a decent system of government got control of that mainland. Good God, there'd be no power in the world that could even, I mean, you put 800 million Chinese to work under a decent system, and they will be the leaders of the world. Now in Beijing, Nixon was in his element. Whatever his long-established negative views on communism as a system of governance, he had not come to China to convert its leaders to American principles of democracy or free enterprise, judging it to be useless. What Nixon sought throughout the Cold War was a stable international order for a world filled with nuclear weapons. Thus, in his first meeting with Joe, Nixon paid tribute to the sincerity of the revolutionaries whose success he had earlier decried as a signal failure of American policy. We know you believe deeply in your principles, and we believe deeply in our principles. We do not ask you to compromise your principles, just as you would not ask us to compromise ours. Nixon acknowledged that his principles had earlier led him, like many of his countrymen, to advocate policies in opposition to Chinese aims. But the world had changed, and now the American interest required that Washington adapt to these changes. My views, because I was in the Eisenhower administration, were similar to those of Mr. Dulles at that time. But the world has changed since then, and the relationship between the People's Republic and the United States must change too. As the Prime Minister has said in a meeting with Dr. Kissinger, the helmsman must ride with the waves or he will be submerged with the tide. Nixon proposed to base foreign policy on the reconciliation of interests provided the national interest was clearly perceived and that it took into account the mutual interest in stability, or at least in avoiding catastrophe, this would introduce predictability into Sino-U.S. relations. Speaking here, the Prime Minister knows, and I know, that friendship 
which I feel we do have on a personal basis, cannot be the basis on which an established relationship must rest, not friendship alone. As friends, we could agree to some fine language, but unless our national interests would be served by carrying out agreements set forward in that language, it would mean very little. For such an approach, candor was the precondition of genuine cooperation. As Nixon told Joe, it is important that we develop complete candor and recognize that neither of us would do anything unless we considered it was in our interests. Nixon's critics often decried these and similar statements as a version of selfishness. Yet Chinese leaders reverted to them frequently as guarantors of American reliability because they were precise, calculable, and reciprocal. On this basis, Nixon put forward a rationale for an enduring American role in Asia, even after the withdrawal of the bulk of U.S. forces from Vietnam. What was unusual about it was that he presented it as being in the mutual interest. For decades, Chinese propaganda had assailed the American presence in the region as a form of colonialist oppression and called upon the people to rise up against it. But Nixon in Beijing insisted that geopolitical imperatives transcended ideology. His very presence in Beijing testified to that. With one million Soviet troops on China's northern border, Beijing would no longer be able to base its foreign policy on slogans about the need to strike down American imperialism. He had stressed America's essential world role to me before the trip. We cannot be too apologetic about America's world role. We cannot either in the past or in the present or in the future. We cannot be too forthcoming in terms of what America will do. Well, in other words, beat our breasts, wear a hair shirt, and, well, we'll withdraw and we'll do this and that and the other thing. Because I think we have to say that, well, who does America threaten? Who would you rather have playing this role? <laughs> 